morning, Cross family. My name is Rick. Uh, in case you're new here, I'm the uh, pastor of student ministries here. And uh, I'm very happy to be able to present on Ecclesiastes chapter 5 today, uh, 5 and 6. This is the fifth part of our series on uh, the search for meaning. And uh, you can look at the other messages on our website if you need to catch up. Uh, but in case you're new to this whole thing in the book of Ecclesiastes, it is uh, basically a long, frustrated journal of a very rich guy who uh, made it his quest to find satisfaction in life without God. And uh, spoiler alert, uh, that's not a thing. There is no satisfaction, ultimate uh, joy in this world without uh, having God at the center of our lives because, uh, at least Christians believe, uh, the entire point of human existence, the point of the universe, the reason people exist is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what we were created for. And so if we're successful in every other way, but neglect this one, we've missed everything. We've missed the entire point. And so he discovers that over and over again. And uh, today, uh, we're going to talk about placing our fears in proper order, organizing our fears wisely based off of the perspective that we get in Ecclesiastes. Because the biggest message is most of what you think matters in life doesn't as much as you think it does. Um, using everything to worship God is truly what matters. That's the point of having everything. And if that's really our goal, it's going to allow us to put our fear of God at the center of our lives. And the really convenient thing about that is it organizes all of our other fears and is going to shrink most of our other fears in relation and give them their proper order. So, um, so like I said, I'm the youth pastor here. And uh, I was raised in church, had a lot of great youth pastors, went to school with a lot of friends who are youth pastors now. And uh, one of the things that's most different about me um, being a youth pastor, besides the fact that I'm not anywhere near as cool as any of them, all right? Uh, they play guitar and have hair that's cool and stuff. I don't have that. But uh, probably the biggest difference uh, is that normal youth pastors have uh, this reputation for being the most reckless person on staff. Um, in a staff meeting at church, if someone says, let's ride a motorcycle through the worship service, that's not usually the senior pastor. That's usually the youth pastor, right? And uh, I grew up with guys that I really admired, uh, there was one guy named uh, Pastor Brian, who, fantastic individual, he's a great guy, but he was one of these really carefree youth pastors, right? And so one time, uh, he had knee surgery from a basketball injury that he had had in college, and gets knee surgery, and then takes everybody to Six Flags to walk around for the entire day, which is itself not something someone who thinks ahead would do, all right, that's going to hurt. And so he's walking around this theme park, and... Uh, his knee starts to really hurt, and he sees this wheelchair. And he says, it's really, it's a, he says to himself, it's really cool that Six Flags would just put out wheelchairs for people who need it, like me. And uh, so he plops himself in, he gets wheeled around uh, until he is apprehended by Six Flags police people, all right? And he's put in the interrogation room, and is put in the very awkward position of answering, because he had a what would Jesus do bracelet, would Jesus steal a wheelchair from an old lady? And he had to say no, right? So, uh, and keep in mind, I come from a Pentecostal denomination, and we're not known as the most careful people in the world anyway, so that's probably the theme with these youth pastors. But even a very, very good friend of mine, um, who, really responsible guy, had a baby yesterday, uh, which was really cool, um, really sacrificial, heroic guy, um, generally pretty careful, he did what all youth pastors do eventually, and that is have a gross food game. I mean, that's gonna happen at some point. We had ours a few weeks ago. It was Nick Slade's idea, um, <laughs> but uh, it was a great idea. It was McDonald's Top Chef, and so you combine McDonald's food to get really gross, okay? So we did that here too. 
Uh, but my buddy Steve has this gross food game for his youth group. And one of the gross foods was, was prune juice. And this child apparently didn't realize what prune juice is most notable for, okay? And so he thought, that doesn't taste so bad, I'll drink the rest. And he asks my friend Steve if he can drink the rest. And if I was the youth pastor in that situation, because I'm a cautious person, I would have said, I have a limited ministry budget, and none of it's going to buying you a new pair of pants, all right? It's going <laughs> to, that's not going to happen. But Steve's like, go ahead, sure. And so the kid makes it, I think, almost halfway home before having to turn the stop sign into his emergency bathroom, okay? Um, I would not have let that happen. I'm a, I'm a cautious person. And uh, the reason is, I think, primarily because my dad's a lawyer. And so I grew up hearing stories about how accidents that nobody saw coming really hurt someone. And so I've got this weird sixth sense where I can see how if that falls and then it falls on that and then that moves, this person's losing an eye, all right? This is the way I see the world. And so that being said, um, I'm a cautious person. Keep that in mind, all right? And uh, one of the big lessons my dad told me as a lawyer I never want you to have a convertible. This is what he tells me, all right? When you, now, I'm sure someone has one, and that's fine. I'm not judging or anything. I would just be too scared to be in one because if they flip, it's a really bad situation, okay? Well, that being said, uh, my wife, Kara, who's at home with uh, my sick little baby right now, he's got a fever, um, but she had a convertible when we, start, when we were starting to date, and I wasn't going to bring that up, right? No big deal. I really liked her. And uh, so this one day, I know to be careful in a convertible, and I know that accidents can really happen. And so I pick up Kara one morning uh, to go to church. And so I was on staff at a church. I was a youth pastor there. And I pick her up, and this was early in the morning, and that's my excuse for this behavior, okay? I, didn't, I don't think I had my coffee yet, and so I wasn't thinking straight. I pick up Kara. We're driving the convertible 55 miles an hour down the road like we were supposed to. And if you would have asked me now or before, Rick, are you irrationally terrified of spiders? I would have said, no, absolutely not. I saw one yesterday and I flicked it. No big deal. I'm not scared of spiders. But uh, going 55 miles an hour down this one road, <laughs> somewhere a spider was hiding and fell off of the visor onto the front of my pants while I was driving. And a cautious person doesn't normally take both hands off the wheel like I did and both eyes off the road like I did and stared at the spider on the front of my pants and then yell to Kara, kill it, kill it. Like that is what I did, which is also a terrible idea because if she would have smacked it as hard as she could, that would have really hurt me and I would have definitely lost control of the car, okay? Uh, this is not what a cautious person normally does, all right? This was an example of what we're gonna be talking about today and that is unwisely organized fears. Fearing something that's not that big of a deal compared to something that could really be a serious problem if we don't, right? And so like I said, that's what we get from the book of Ecclesiastes is knowing what an actual catastrophe is and what a minor loss looks like, okay? So in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 1, uh, Solomon writes, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that what they're doing is evil. So take a second and just reflect and ask yourself, when have I listened the most clearly in all the times of my life? What got my attention the quickest and what held me pay attention the absolute sharpest ever? Um, for me, 
Uh, this happened twice this last week. I was, uh, Kara and I were house-sitting for the Slades. They were on their anniversary vacation, and it's a different house, and there are different noises that happen at night, right? A bump in the night uh, has gotten my attention more than anything ever, right? And so there was two times this last week when I woke up to a sound I just could not identify. First of all, to wake up from a noise is one thing, but then to have no idea what it is really causes you to concentrate. And so I wake up to a sound that the first picture on my head was a finger tapping on the window, like a creeper would do, all right? And so that's what it sounded like, was this weird tapping sound, this soft tap. And so for us, the bodily sensation was wild. I mean, it was just, my blood starts pumping like crazy, my heart is on fire, and my ears could do this thing that I didn't know they could do, and that is block out every other single noise in the house and concentrate on this one. That is what fear can help us do when listening. It turns out um, that it was really just raindrops, okay? And uh, then a few nights later, um, again, wake up in the middle of the night to this really strange noise that I couldn't identify, and it sounded exactly like a ringtone on a phone, uh, which is weird, okay, because Karen and I don't have one, and so I'm thinking someone must have broken the house and they're getting a phone call in the middle of it, which is very inconvenient for them, all right? Uh, but that's what it sounded like. And then I realized that's, that can't be a ringtone. It sounds like a, a music box that a robber might have bumped and opened, okay? And well, it turns out it was his uh, dryer. <laughs> Nick, the musician, has a dryer that makes music when it's done with towels, okay? And so I had never, I didn't know that was a thing anywhere, but that's what it was. And so the result of a proper fear of things, trying to figure out what's really going on in a situation, results in us listening very, very carefully. And that's proper with God. It's proper to understand who God is and what he requires and put our attention into really listening and understand what he wants, what he cares about, what he doesn't like, and what the point of our lives is, what he would say they are. So uh, one of the results of not listening to God, to not understanding God, and to speaking too soon is uh, what Solomon calls in the second half of uh, verse one, the sacrifice of fools, okay? And in your bulletin, I got some notes on this, what the sacrifice of fools might include, okay? And it probably includes more than this, uh, but three things that I think it would definitely include is failure to count the cost of a gift, right? The sacrifice you're talking about making, to not count the cost of that, to know where it fits in your life and how much it will require. So Jesus, when he's preaching and calling disciples, constantly tells people to count the cost. Number one, so they don't get in, find out it's hard and stop, but also so that they actually count the cost and realize what they're going to gain by following him. Because there's no comparison when you actually count the cost versus the benefit. But that being said, um, a sacrifice of fools would include not counting the cost of what you're talking about giving to God, okay? Secondly, an attempt to bribe God is a sacrifice of a fool, okay? Because he owns it all anyway. And if he really wanted something you had, he could just like kill you. <laughs> like, it just wouldn't take long, he could. Um, and so it's not like we hold something that he can't have. That's a misunderstanding. Uh, and then third, uh, trying to bribe God with a gift that he's not actually really all that interested in. Frequently, the Bible is filled with stories with people who thought God, had, God wanted one thing because they weren't listening to him. They didn't really understand what he wanted. And it turns out he actually wants something other than this, right? And so you may be thinking about times in your life where you may have done this before. I'm not going to call you guys out. I'll let you know what I did one time. Uh, but I definitely remember uh, doing the sacrifice of fools thing one time. Um, as a high school student who grew up in Lake Worth, Florida, at the, at the beach, 
And uh, it was 15 minutes from the beach. I'd go every day after school to go surfing. And I loved it. It was fanatic. I was fanatical about it. And so I would paddle out even when there was no waves, right? Just to get the exercise, just to get the practice. And so this one day in the afternoon, it was totally flat. There wasn't a ripple in the ocean. I just wanted to get the exercise and be out in the water. And so the city I grew up in, Lake Worth, has this pier. And you can basically measure how far you are in the ocean by the pier. It's this great measuring stick thing. And so this one particular time, uh, I remember paddling and being really, really tired at the end of it. I made it three quarters of the way out. Uh, my surfboard was really thin and really narrow, which meant it was really hard to get it to move because if you have a, you know, a wide board, it takes no effort, but this thing was a lot of hard work. And so I finally get out there three quarters of the way out and do what you do. You sit there, you turn around, you look at the shore, and my feet are dangling in the water. And it was really peaceful. I remember just letting my arms rest a little bit. They were burning and aching, and all my attention was there until my attention was interrupted by feeling something big and soft just kind of hit the bottom of my foot as if I wasn't there. And so I'm telling a bunch of stories today about me being afraid of things. I don't really have a fear problem. It's just on the topic, okay? That being said, I am scared of sharks, like for real. And I don't apologize to anyone for it. And so in my head, I'm thinking, I don't care what that was. It's close enough to a shark. I look down, push up on the board, feet up as high as I can. And all I saw was gray. And so like, it's possible that it was small and all I was looking at is this part. But everywhere I was looking, it was gray, like a shark would be. And in one motion, I mean, I probably looked like a total spaz out there, paddling absolutely as hard as I could, knowing that I have no strength left. I mean, like, I was tired at this point, but I'm paddling absolutely as hard as I can, and the sacrifice of fools was happening a lot. I was promising God all kinds of stuff in this moment, right? I will be a missionary to anywhere you want me to go, all right? And uh, just paddling as hard as I could. And something weird happened. Uh, the closer and closer I got to shore, um, the less and less I was promising, right? And so while I was out there, absolutely, any country you want, halfway there, I've got some ideas on which countries I would like to go serve, okay? And then a quarter of the pier in, I thought, I could, even if a shark did bite my foot off, I probably wouldn't die. And so then it was getting to the point where I'm definitely going to give more money in the offering, right? And so this is what happens when we're trying to negotiate with God from some fear, uh, speaking impulsively. So like I said, uh, the scripture is full of times when people think God wants one thing, and it turns out that he wants another, right? And part of fearing God, listening to God, understanding God is going to be knowing what he actually wants. This is also great marriage advice, okay? Um, but anyways, there was a time where Jesus told people, I want you to go find out what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What God is interested in us doing and being uh, is having the hearts that show mercy to neighbor. That's really what he's interested in. And, and it could be tempted to dismiss the idea of mercy as some sort of politically liberal thing, but it's not. This is Jesus talking. He, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And not little gestures of mercy. A heart that is so transformed by the mercy he's shown to us that it will be instinctive to show that same generosity and love and mercy to neighbor for their benefit. So uh, Solomon will say uh, in Proverbs and in Ecclesiastes, and uh, Job, in the book of Job, these three books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, are considered the wisdom literature of Scripture. 
And in all three of these books, the advice to fear God is given. We really see this in the book of Job, right? He has a proper fear and respect of God and is very slow to talk. Uh, Proverbs says that the uh, beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 7, Solomon writes, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity or foolishness. But God is the one that you must fear, right? So one of the biggest takeaways from the day is that the absolute greatest catastrophe of our lives would be to be without the presence of God, right? And so to lose that is to lose everything. And so it's, that's the fear that we're going to want to keep central. Uh, Dallas Willard is a guy who's really influenced me a lot, and he spoke really wisely on this thing, this, this fear of the Lord issue. He says that the problem with people, the human condition as it has been called, uh, as the scripture would say, is that there is no fear of God before the eyes of people. They're not afraid of God. They don't have enough respect and fear and admiration and honoring of God. He says, fear of God, the Proverbs tell us, is the beginning of wisdom. Although it is not the outcome of wisdom, it is the indispensable beginning, right? So we move beyond the fear eventually. It turns into love. It turns into worship and honor and a preference to be with. But it starts out to be fearful of God. He says, one begins to get smart when he or he fears being crosswise of God. He fears not doing what God wants and not being as he requires. Fear is the anticipation of harm. God is not mean, but he is dangerous, just as some of the great forces he has placed in reality are dangerous. Electricity and nuclear power, for example, they are not mean, but they are dangerous. In a certain sense, if we do not worry about God, we simply are not being smart. And that is the point of the verse. But the reason this is such a hard topic is because it is so easy to misunderstand what the fear of God is. In this case, it is not the kind of fear that would drive us away from God. Otherwise, heaven would be really hellish. The fear of God includes the absolute bottom of that fear, the foundation of the fear, is being in a situation where God has rejected us and our, uh, our ability to enjoy him, our ability to be with him is no more, right? And so it's, the fear of God is actually the fear of being rejected by God. And so it's really important in life, if we're to take anything from this book, if we're to live wisely, you've heard the question that someone will say before taking a big risk perhaps, uh, or when they're trying to deal with their fears, the question will be asked, what's the worst that can happen? This is a great question to ask ourselves. And I think that each of us would be wise to truly find out in life, what is the worst thing that could happen? Like, what is the thing we should have a proper fear of? Tim Cash, the lead pastor here, has been really helpful to me with the way he goes through this. He would tell somebody uh, who's afraid of something. He's afraid of losing a relationship or a job or some money or some sort of fearful thing is going on, he would say, what's the worst that could happen? And the person might say, my car is going to get repoed or I'm going to be embarrassed or I'm going to lose this relationship or something like that. And to be, to be honest, like you will have a certain concern for those things, even if you do have God as your central fear. But that, that's not the worst thing that can happen. There's a big difference here. So they'd say, well, maybe lose a car, lose a job, whatever. And he would say, no, no, no. Tim would say, that's not the worst that can happen. The worst that can happen is for us to die and be in hell and have absolutely no possibility of being with the God who created you to be with him, for you to miss your entire purpose forever. There is zero question. There's no comparison. There's nothing worse than that. That's the worst that can happen. All right, so keep that in mind. And then he would say, what's the best that can happen? 
And the person might still be thinking of the situation and say, well, what I'm afraid of won't happen. Or maybe I'll get a raise at my job, or maybe I'll be able to get a new car, or something like that. He says, no, (laughs) the best that can happen is that you'll be able to spend eternity with God forever, fulfilling the exact purpose you were created for. That's the best possible thing that can happen. And if you're a Christian, will the worst thing that could happen to you happen? No. If you're a Christian, you aren't going to hell. You are going to be with the Lord in heaven. Will the best thing happen eventually? Yes. And so what this means is all of these other concerns in life, which we should rightly have a concern for out of stewardship for those issues that are important, these are no longer the best or worst thing that can happen to us, which means we can organize those other concerns within the fear of God and the anticipation of being with God for eternity. This is a great, this is a greatly freeing way to live. I really appreciate how he talks about this. C.S. Lewis uh, said that there's two types of people. There's the kind of person that says to God, your will be done, and there's the kind of person to whom God says, okay, fine, have it your way, right? And as long as we're the kind of people who are saying to God, your will be done, it's you who I want to be with, I believe my life exists for your glory, we don't have to worry about the best or the best, or excuse me, the worst thing to happen, and we can look forward to the best thing that's happening, right? So on a practical level, what does the fear of God include, okay? Um, Again, it's going to include more than this, but I think things that are really helpful are listed in the bulletin. Uh, Esteeming God's opinion more than anything else. I mean, that's definitely going to include treasuring our relationship with God over everything else would mean valuing his opinion more than anyone else's opinion in the entire world. And to be honest with you, (laughs) that's kind of the big struggle for the rest of our lives is learning to trust God's opinion more than our neighbor's opinion based on whatever their interest is. So this last week, I watched a documentary, uh, which was really good. It was called uh, Becoming Warren Buffett. And it was about this, uh, basically, the greatest uh, US investor of all time. I mean, he had $60 billion until he gave $30 billion to the Gates Foundation uh, to spend on uh, wiping out malaria and stuff. He gave it to a humanitarian organization. And he's phenomenal in being able to pick these incredible investments that really, really seriously pay off for him. And uh, he describes the way he invests as being like a guy at a baseball home plate, right? And he says, I watch pitch after pitch go by me. I don't swing, I don't flinch. I watch pitch after pitch go by me. And some guy from the stands would yell, take a swing, you bum, what are you doing? You're just standing there. But what he's doing is waiting for the right one to take a serious hit at and knock out of the park. That's what he does. And so what's happening in this case is Warren Buffett is not esteeming the opinion of the other investor next to him saying, we're gonna miss out if we don't do this. He's ignoring the guy in the stands saying, hey, take a swing, you bum. He doesn't care about what that guy thinks. He's thinking about the opinion of his teacher, who's a guy named Benjamin Graham, who taught him how to invest. His opinion is the one that counts, right? This is what we do in our relationship with the Lord. Because of his power, because of his wisdom, we can trust the Lord because he's actually smart, and because he loves us more than we love ourselves, right? So that's the motivation for giving our esteem to his opinion more than others. If we esteem his opinion more than others, we will then naturally listen. We will want to know what's going on with God. We'll want to know what he wants done in the world. So for example, uh, when I was going after Kara, uh, in the very beginning, uh, we were at a youth leaders retreat, and I remember being in conversations with people around me, this is kind of rude, Uh, But I didn't know what we were talking about. I was absolutely ignoring what was going on in this conversation because she was over here talking about stuff. 
And so when she had said, I dated a guy for two years and never got flowers, I mean, you know how that bump of the night thing happens where your attention goes there? That's what I heard, <laughs> locked onto that. It's part of the reason we're married now, because I brought her flowers, okay? But when you esteem the opinion of someone outside the crowd, uh, this is what we're, we're called to do uh, with the Lord. And then third, one of the biggest things that's going to happen if we're fearing God uh, more than we fear anything else, if we esteem his opinion more than any other opinion, uh, we are going to be diligent in protecting our heart from a rival love. We're going to protect our hearts from idols, okay? And so there's a zillion idols we could talk about, but Ecclesiastes 6 is going to touch on the love of money. We're also going to go into for a second about why the love of money is really such a serious, universal uh, temptation to trust money rather than trusting God. It's very, very common. We were warned seriously by Jesus and Paul about this. And so we'll talk about that in a second. But uh, uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, uh, Solomon makes it a little easier not to love money by letting us in on a little piece of advice. He says, he who loves money not has money, not spends it wisely. He who loves and treasures money, and that's the thing you're into in life. He who loves money will never be satisfied with money, nor will he who loves wealth uh, be satisfied with his income. This is also vanity, meaning it's really annoying <laughs> that you're cursed, uh, you are doomed to boredom forever and disappointment. You will always be disappointed if money is the scorecard you're going by, because you'll never have enough, is basically what he's saying. So, one of the reasons, uh, if we love money, it'll always disappoint us is because of what I talked about a few weeks ago in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, this thing that happens uh, that psychologists call the hedonic treadmill. And what it basically means is that when you have something nice that comes to your life, you get used to it pretty quickly and you get bored with it. So Dave Ramsey would say, if you eat enough lobster, it begins to taste like soap. Uh, you're going to get a new car, and it smells like the best new car you've ever smelled, all right? And then within three months, you forget that it's a new car. We get used to stuff. So that's one reason that loving money means you'll never have enough. But in addition to that, and I think this is really key uh, to loving our neighbor well and, and loving God well, there's something that happens to people all the time. This is extremely natural, and it takes some pretty serious dedication to discipleship to overcome this this thing that happens, but it's called relative deprivation theory. So to be deprived is to have lack, okay? Uh, relative means in comparison to people that's close to you. And so what this thing is talking about, relative deprivation theory is saying, is that if everybody in this room was comparing their financial well-being to people in North Korea or some other country that's really having a hard time, we would never not be overjoyed ever. <laughs> We would be happy all the time, right? We would understand how fortunate we are. Um, but that's extremely rare. People almost never take that huge objective stance in what always happens, whether it's career accomplishment, whether it's how much money we have, the clothes we wear, the talents we have, we always compare ourselves to the people closest to us, okay? Which is going to mean we're always going to be dissatisfied if money is our love, because when you go to another economic class, you're the new guy. <laughs> They've been there for a while, and they have more, right? And let's say you get into the one above that, then you have a whole new set of people to compare yourself to. And so what he's saying is, if this is how you live, it's always going to be miserable, right? And so relative deprivation theory doesn't just happen with money. Um, it has a real cost uh, to the United States um, in the workforce. So for instance, uh, there is a writer that I really appreciate named Malcolm Gladwell. 
and he talks about this problem that happens. Uh, I'm sure it happens with a lot of majors, but he studied people who study math at Harvard, okay? They get accepted to Harvard, they're a genius at math, and a math degree is one of the most valuable things you can have, and the country needs it. Like, we need people to be good at math in this country. And so these students go to Harvard, they're really excited that they're accepted, they get into class, and the top two-thirds of the class do really well and they graduate, and they're happy. But the bottom third of the class have a really hard time, and it's really, and this happens at other universities as well that aren't as elite as Harvard, but he says this is a predictable thing. The bottom third of the class will get discouraged and drop out, even though this degree is really valuable, but the emotional cost is so hard for them. And so this is, this is a real cost to us, and it's a cost to them, okay? And so Gladwell um, has a, a less ambitious uh, solution to this than I would have, but he basically tells people, if you get accepted to Harvard, don't go there. Go to a school a few tiers below, because you'll be at the top 30 of your class, you'll graduate, you'll have a really great life. You won't be able to brag as much, all right? But what's that worth? We need people who can do these jobs. And so let's just say this, if I was a guidance counselor, and a bunch of my students were saying, I think I'm gonna drop out because it's too hard to be uh, in the top third of the class or whatever. I might just say, go to a school that's not as hard, <laughs> maybe. But here's the deal, if one of my CSM students or if my son was in that situation where he said, I'm in the bottom of the third of the class and this is really difficult for me and I think I'm gonna drop out, what I would tell him is that he is esteeming the opinions of the people around him more than he is esteeming the opinion of God, right? When you're looking at things in comparison by rank, uh, you're esteeming the opinions of your neighbors. You're finding your security in how you match up compared to other people. This is not a worshipful attitude, right? This is not the way that we find our security in God. We are fearing the disapproval of people more than we're fearing letting an opportunity drop that the Lord gave us. And so if, if Ricky comes to me and says, I think, you know, I'm going to drop out. This is too hard. I would say, when has this ever been anything other than worship? When, when did this become trying to impress people, right? Why are you esteeming the opinions of these other people rather than saying there's an entire world that needs to be served? I am better equipped with this opportunity, and it's all worship to the Lord anyway. That would be, I think, the solution to this. Um, but beyond satisfaction, right, beyond uh, being disappointed that if we never have enough money, uh, we'll always kind of be miserable. Uh, the worst part of loving money isn't uh, that you'll always be unsatisfied by it, you'll be bored with it. The worst part is that Paul makes this really serious claim that the love of money is the root of all evil, all right? And I just, you don't get stronger than that. Like, evil in the world's really bad, right? You turn on the news and you, you just cringe when you see what's happening. And what he's saying is that somehow the love of money, or what is very similar to the love of money at least, that same root in your heart, what causes the love of money, is the same thing that causes all the evil in the world. And here's the deal. I'm going to post a link in my notes to an article uh, that you might want to read. Um, because I'm going to reduce this to a point that I'm uncomfortable with. I really don't like to oversimplify things, but I'm going to take the one takeaway on uh, John Piper's explanation of why the love of money is actually the root of all evil, not just the root of some, but the root of all. Uh, and you can read it for yourself. Uh, but at the, at the very least, uh, Piper says that the reason Paul would say that idolizing money, loving money more than God, is the root of all the evil that happens is because it is the desire 
to have what you want without God being a part of it. And like I said, there's other good stuff in the article, but to oversimplify it, the reason someone would really love money more than God is because they trust money more than God. They trust that they can get what they want better if it's without God. And how is that, how is that evil? That doesn't sound that bad. Well, first, it's exactly the story of Ecclesiastes. Again, like I said, his journal is about trying to find satisfaction in life without God. He ends up with uh, 700 wives and, or 300 wives and 700 concubines. That is not a good way to treat women, right? That is evil to do that. And as he's looking for satisfaction in life without God, these are the types of things that happen with him. And you can see how the love of money, the desire to get what we want without taking God into account, without taking our neighbors into account, is the cause of the greatest evils of all time, right? It's the story of the Garden of Eden as well. God says, I don't want you to do this one thing, and there's no way to have the relationship with God while also having this one thing that he says, I don't want you to have, right? And so it's the, it's the same root um, in all of this stuff. And so uh, I told Danny, uh, uh, I'm, my family's living with another family right now, and uh, I told him on the way out today, the reason that I'm nervous about touching on the love of money too quickly isn't because I'm afraid it's an unpopular topic, right? And people are gonna be mad that we're talking about this deeply personal thing. The reason that I'm afraid of moving too quickly on the love of money issue is because it is almost always misunderstood, right? I'm bringing two really difficult topics here today. The fear of God is easily misunderstood and really important to understand. And the love of money is very easily misunderstood and important to, uh, to understand. And so one of my biggest influences, uh, Dallas Willard says that there are far mistakes more dangerous than responding to the love of money incorrectly, right? And the reason I'm gonna say this, and I'm gonna recommend uh, some reading here. Um, there's a book called uh, The Spirit of the Disciplines that Dallas Willard wrote. Chapter nine is a chapter called Is Poverty Spiritual? Question <laughs> mark. That's the title, Is Poverty Spiritual? The reason he had to write this is the same reason I'm, about, I'm nervous about not spending more time on it. Uh, almost every Christian I've met in my lifetime, not all, but many, uh, the majority, have, go one or two ways when it comes to dealing with money. Either we tem we, we're tempted to idealize poverty, where we say the poor person is automatically more righteous and more close to God than the person that has money. And Willard say that's one of the most dangerous illusions in all of Christian thought. It's been made for thousands of years with serious mistakes, and he corrects it. Or on the other side, we don't, we're not concerned enough about uh, the love of money, right? We don't have a, a delicate enough relationship. We don't understand how badly our lives can go if we're not cautious about guarding our hearts against the love of money. And so it's usually one mistake or the other. Um, but if you were interested in forming an attitude uh, towards it that would, I think, really be God-honoring and less stress for all of us as Christians, that chapter, Is Poverty Spiritual?, is, is really helpful. Um, but in case you're not into reading, I'm going to leave us with um, one way that we can guard against the love of money by every two weeks reminding ourselves that God is the ultimate treasure of our lives and that money's not. That we trust God more than we trust money. We love God more than trust money. That we can fear the loss of God more appropriately than we would fear the loss of money. And that's the practice of tithing, okay? So, like I said, I grew up in the church with youth pastors who stole wheelchairs, all right? I've been around for a long time uh, in the church. And I've always been too scared not to tithe, all right? That's the way I grew up. 
And, uh, and I do think that the fear of the Lord is a good place to begin. But as I've grown up and as it's gone from just a basic fear of God into the love of God, I can tell you, now when I see the green number that pops up on the bank account on payday, we're all going to have a dopamine release in our brains. We're all going to be happy when we see that we got paid. It's this really encouraging feeling. You feel like you could do all kinds of stuff, right? And in that moment, that is the one. This is the devotional practice. That's the moment where we have to say, do I love God more or do I love money more? What is the treasure of my life? And so the response will be 10% to the Lord through the tithe. And what this statement is when, when I do this is, I am fully aware that you are the greatest treasure in the universe, Lord, and I am fully aware that Paul's not joking around about the love of money being this terrifying thing that causes all the evil in the world, and you have provided for me in ways that money can't. God can do things that money can't. Therefore, this is not only worship to you because you require it, this is a reminder to me that I'm not maximizing the amount of money I can make in a lifetime. That's not where the joy lies. And then secondly, that 10% that goes to the Lord reminds me that the other 90% is to be used in seeking first the kingdom of God. That's what the money's for. That's what food's for. That's what relationships are for. That's what our bodies are for. Everything exists for us to seek first the kingdom of God. And so, which this, which this means is we eat for God's sake, right? To, To seek the kingdom of God first means to desire God's desires. It means we want all kinds of stuff, but we're going to submit our desires to God's desires and match them. So when we eat, it's because we understand how that fits into all the stuff God is doing in the world, right? I wrote this blog article that was way longer than I expected it to on brushing your teeth is worships the Lord. That is to say, when we buy a toothbrush, <laughs> this can be act of worship, right? You're seeking the kingdom of God as you're brushing your teeth. And so the 10% says, this is yours, Lord, do what you please with it. It's also a reminder that the rest of the 90%, my joy is not found in the stuff I buy. The joy is found in giving my attention to the Lord as I live my daily life in all the stuff that I'm responsible to do and doing it as Jesus would if he was in my position. So the action to implement that I'm going to leave with you guys is uh, in the bulletin. And uh, it says this, give your attention to your fears when they pop up in daily life. Don't suppress them, investigate them, interrogate them. Compare your fear of losing possessions or relationships or whatever else treasure in your life. Compare that fear of losing those possessions to your confidence that comes from knowing that God possesses you.